Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me, as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. We introduced a new monthly format on our March 2019 podcast, but just a quick recap. Every month, we do a monthly links post where we highlight all the things that have caught our attention that month. And then we're using this podcast as an opportunity to build out a bit on some of the different articles and topics that stood out the most to us in that month, as well as reviewing some of the more interesting situations in event-driven land. So, Chris, I think the thing that I most wanted to talk about today were probably two of the most interesting opportunities in Risk Arbland, and that's Centene's takeover of Wellcare, and then also returning a little bit to the Occidental and Adarco merger. We discussed that on last month's podcast, but there's been a lot of interesting news there. I think just overall, the theme that connects both of these situations is buyer shareholders who are frustrated with strategic deals that are being done at rather large premiums. So I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Which of the deals do you want to start with, Centene Wellcare or Occidental Anadarko? Let's start with Wellcare for something new. Okay. So Centene Wellcare, this is a deal in the healthcare, health insurance space that was announced late March. Centene is buying Wellcare. This is a really big deal. Centene is a Medicaid giant worth about $25 billion. Wellcare is a Medicare giant worth about $15 billion. And almost since the moment the ink dried on this deal, there have been rumors that a hostile bidder, and I put hostile in quotes, most like Humana, is going to come in and make Centene a huge over-the-top offer that they'll break their deal with Wellcare and be forced to sell to Humana. And you can kind of see that in Wellcare stock price. The Centene offer is worth about $315 per share. Wellcare is currently trading for about $275 per share. That's a 13 to 15% spread. My math is currently saying that uh, currently the market's pricing in just a 55% chance that this deal goes through. Uh, so why is it timely to talk about today? Aside from the big spread last week, Wall- the Wall Street Journal reported that Third Point had bought a 300 million stake in Centene. And that Third Point, while they're not a opposed to the Wellcare deal, they want Centene to be shopped before the deal happens. So I've got a lot of thoughts about this, but I've talked a ton. I'm going to turn it over to you. What do you think about the deal and the odds it goes through? Much higher than the market implied probability, which is probably pretty consistent with the disclosures they will hear at the end that we shareholders of the target. There are regulatory issues that I think lead to much more timing uncertainty than outcome uncertainty. Uh, And really, the likelihood that this deal gets through done is quite high. The likelihood that it breaks, if you're just trying to kill the deal, it really would be some combination of enough regulatory problems to delay a tough market, other exogenous events where the buyer has buyer's remorse and the kind of co-ops the regulatory review to slow things down. It is legitimately a difficult area for hostile deals. Buyer and sellers need to actively coordinate together to get through especially the state regulatory review process, which is onerous and complex. If the buyer – if it becomes hostile or undesired, that could complicate things. But that's like you know just trying to come up with a theory on how to kill the deal. That's less than 10%. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think we saw this last year like CVS Aetna. The merger just dragged on and on and on because state review boards, once there were kind of only a few left, they were saying like – why don't we just get a pound of flesh, like make them throw everything in there or else we'll reject this deal and their multi-billion dollar merger will go down in flames. And you're kind of worried that at some point a state 
demands too much flesh and this deal just gets blocked. Also, in a country where we have a lot of political parity nationally, you at the state level have quite a few state trifectas where there's kind of a crowded field of Democrats and Democrat states, Republicans and Republican states, and especially with more activist states, uh, the AG is frequently kind of a vigorous political position. The insurance commissioners are often vigorous political positions. Some of these deal reviewers or commenters all of a sudden look around and say, hey, we can get some headlines personally. And so there could be some drama there. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of the utility mergers. We haven't seen Mm -hmm. a utility merger in a long time, a big one for a long time, probably for this reason. But the first thing utility X wants to buy utility Y, the utility Y state regulatory body says, why are we going to let this deal through it? There's nothing in it for us. And then utility X says, say, we'll give your customers $50 million of rate cuts, $100 million of rate cuts. And it's just how much in rate cuts and giveaways can you give before you're like, this merger just doesn't make any sense. So Mm -hmm. uh, market is at 55% to for this deal to get voted down. It sounds like you were saying maybe like a 10% for this 55% for this deal to go through. Okay. It sounds like you were saying 10% chance that there's some type of regulatory yeah, block. Throw in another 5%. Uh, you know, I, I'm at like 85, kind of 80, 80 90, uh, but using 85. So that, that would imply the market's like a 30% chance that Humana comes in as a hostile bidder or there's some type of activist pressure that gets the shareholder vote at sensing fails. So why don't we turn over to that? What do you think about like kind of why is third point going activist here or semi activist? I'd say. What do you think the case for that is? I don't think it is a great case. Uh, I don't think that the timing is great in terms of specifically winning. It might be a great strategy or at least a possible strategy. The hedge fund's good hedge fund. I have a lot of admiration for Dan Loeb. He's actually done well uh, in the past as a kind of deal buyer. You know, we saw that in Bexalta, which we were involved with on the ARB spread. It was a significant position at the time. He simply owned the buyer and had done well with, with that in the past in other situations than this. So, you know, I think that he might find it a kind of a win-win with optionality to kind of get his foot in the door. So I think it might be fine. I don't think it'll work. Yeah. You know, it's just a strange activist position to me because the way a deal works is if you're sentine, you sign this merger with WellCare and one of the things in it says, we can't actively go and look for another deal that breaks this. And Dan- and Third Point comes out and says, hey, you know, we're not opposed to the WellCare deal, but we'd like sentine to shop itself first. And to me, it says, it, it makes no sense. You're asking Centene to go do something that's against their merger contract. You're asking them to be in breach of the merger contract. That doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, I see a lot of parallels here between this deal and the Bristol Myers Celgene yes. deal uh, earlier this year, where in that point, Starbird came out and were very actively against the deal. Now, in that case, they were actively against it, where it seems third point's not super actively against this deal. But Starbird came out and said, we want Bristol Myers to be sold. We don't want them to be buying anything. They came out very actively against it. And I think underlying both uh, kind of activist and semi-activist campaign in Bristol and Centene, I think this stock is cheap. It's been hit on a deal. You know, I'll, I'll take a position in here. I'll get some news headlines. And, you know, in a good case... They'll get a buyout offer or the stock will respond well. I just don't think there's a lot of downside in a, in a bad case here where they don't respond to any of my demands. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I think that activism's greatest moments are really kind of from a highly humble perspective where a insider team has acted unhumbly. You know, they're wasting money. They're not thinking about per share value and their empire building. And activists come in and say, look, here's a blunt weapon just sell. You need to get fired. It's been egregiously bad. Centene's CEO has been 
good. The stock has done well. They have a lot of credibility. And so just outsiders without inside information kind of subtly hinting at possibly suboptimal behavior, I think is just more subtle than the tool of activism is good for. And uh, this is a a baseball bat, not a scalpel. You can't really use it as a scalpel and saying, oh, maybe they should have done this slightly differently. Control has value. You get paid a control premium only once. Maybe they should be doing it now. Maybe they should be doing it next year. But I don't have a very good reason to not not defer to the insiders on this. Yeah. And this morning, Centene's CEO was at a conference. He says, we're doing what's in the best interest of our long-term shareholders, not event-driven investors who want a one-time premium. And like to some extent, that speaks to the value investor. When I say, hey, build long-term value. And at some point, that short-term value will come and someone will pay a big premium. I also do worry when management teams start hating on investors saying, oh, this is a long-term thing. You're not thinking long-term enough because I've seen that used to justify a lot of bad deals. But as you said, I think you look at his track record the stock's up like 20 times in the past 15 years. He owns hundreds of million dollars of shares, if memory serves me correct. You know, I think the CEOs earned the benefit of the doubt. And when everyone's coming saying, I think this deal's okay, I would just prefer you get paid a huge premium and get acquired instead, you know, well, maybe that option wasn't there. So I, I think it's a good deal. I think it'll be interesting to see how it goes. And uh, obviously, the market's scared this will get voted down. I, I think the I agree with you. I think the odds are super low. And that, that's why we own it. Looking at 13Fs from the first quarter, so the time doesn't line up perfectly, but it gives you some information about new Centene positions. They very frequently came with significant new well care positions as well. So it didn't look like there was kind of a wolf pack of hedge funds that were in any way coordinating or planning some attack on the deal. But the only time I've really seen something kind of voted down in any kind of coordinated fashion was when the bulk of the economic exposure was to another part of the capital structure mm-hmm. and all the hedge funds knew what they were doing. They were all working together and they were going to vote something down that might have been voted in favor of had they not had another part of the capital structure they were protecting. Yeah. There's nothing like this here. In fact, if anything, it's possible that at least some of the Centina's exposure is to vote for this deal. And I think that could happen. I definitely think that was happening on the Bristol situation. I think that could be happening here too. You know, I think the most overuse saying in event address investing today is you can't beat something with nothing. And in this case, you know, you can't beat an accretive well care deal by voting no and just hoping that you get a big premium at some point. So why don't we leave it there and move on to Anadarko Occidental, unless unless you want to say anything else. Cool. So last month we talked about the Occidental Chevron bidding war for Anadarko. And literally as we were posting the podcast, news came out that Warren Buffett was backing Occidental's bid and providing them with a really attractive for Berkshire and Warren Buffett's really attractive financing. We predicted Chevron would end up probably winning or at least matching Occidental offer, but backed by Warren Buffett, Occidental made a huge increase in the cash portion of their deal, and Chevron ultimately walked away. Uh, we just thought it was timely to revisit this because just today, Carl Icahn sued Occidental, and he called the deal fundamentally misguided and hugely overpriced. And I'm just going to pull some of the fun quotes from the lawsuit here. The Icahn partners believe that Occidental is in over their heads. They've made numerous blunders in recent months, and they might continue to trip over their feet if the board is not strengthened. And then I loved when he said on Buffett's re- rescue financing, a 90-minute deal negotiation 
with one of history's candiest investors is no place to gain M&A experience, at least if you care about protecting your stockholders. You know, I agree with everything Carl Icahn said, but I think the market got a little bit shaky here. Anadarko traded down a bit. It's currently at $71 per share. The Occidental's cash and stock offer is worth about $74. That's about a 5% growth spread, 11 to 12% annualized if you think it closed sometime kind of in late 3Q. So the market's implying 85 to 90% chance this deal goes through. I think that's probably a little bit low than once you start getting that high. It's tough to start splitting hairs. What do you think about Icon Suit and the chance of the deal going through? I really try to not split hairs anything over 95%. I kind of figure I don't know how to spell my name with more than that confidence. It's just so dangerous kind of getting into these very high percentages. But I think the likelihood this deal closes is somewhere in that dangerously high north of 90 percent better than the market thinks i think it's very good icon does make good points uh, including m&a with comparatively small buyers have historically been much more fraught than large companies uh, tucking in smaller companies also divestor buyers typically get great deals total as a great one here they know the seller is not just a willing seller but practically a forced seller it really shows in how these deals work out icon i think repeatedly focuses on the unknown of the oil price. You just don't know. Is it going to go up or down? This is a leveraged bet on the oil price. And I think his strategy, the deal strategy might be okay. It might not. But his strategy here is pretty solid. If it goes up, he makes a lot of money on his oxy position. If mm-hmm. he's right, more or less, and I think he is here, oil price goes up a lot, he'll make money. If it goes down, he's much more likely to succeed in his activism efforts. And while we mentioned Centene stocks up quite a lot since their CEO took command, that's not the case here with oxys. It's down since she did. And you know, you have a situation where maybe fairly, maybe unfairly, their management is in a more precarious situation to uh, his uh, concerns. And then the last thing I just mentioned is he's kind of right on auction dynamics, why Buffett doesn't get involved in them. Uh, They're terrible, not just for the typical reason cited as animal spirits, but also just for the logistical one that it's not possible to be price sensitive and time sensitive at the same time. A comment that Buffett made at this year's annual meeting really explicitly explained what I kind of assumed was his behavior, what the market assumes is his behavior in these situations that you could assume about him. He never bluffs interest or lack of interest in bidding. He has this very straightforward mm-hmm. way he approaches it. In negotiating with him, if you can even call it a negotiation, you get one shot. It's one iteration. Yep. And if you kind of come in with a hard bargain, he'll simply say no and he'll end the conversation. He won't necessarily even come back. She walked in. She gave him quantitatively a sensational deal. The perfect thing for Berkshire shareholders, not just that as a great, great EV, but as a great EV and it's kind of tailored for the capital that he has in his position in the market. It's a great rate of return and an even greater kicker. And in return, she got all the qualitative terms she wanted, speedy resolution, utter certainty, excluded all the normal contractual outs any other investor really would typically put in these kind mm-hmm. of things. Uh, so she got what she wanted. He got what he wanted. It was a real exchange, but the value in that went to Berkshire. Yeah. And I thought Icon, I mean, it was a, the suit and the letter were just a masterclass in kind of activist investing, I think. But I think he rightly raked them through the coals. I mean, you had a CEO who even in public was making comments like, we need to win this. You know, it, it started to sound like it wasn't about shareholders. It was about reputation and empire building. And she went to one to best bidder. She flew 
flew over over there, offered them something, and they took the whole thing. And Icon rightly said, you didn't test the market. You didn't try to break this up into more creative packages. You just got one deal so that you could go get your big Anadarko deal done. She went to Buffett and she gave him, I think people said, uh, I think the math on it is kind of, he invested $10 billion. And once the ink was dry on the paper, he probably could have flipped all the securities he got for about $12 billion. So instant 20% premium, really attractive stuff there. So I believe dividends on preferred stock is tax advantage for Berkshire. So there's a little bit of kicker there as well. But yeah, you know, I, I just thought it was a masterclass and icon just using public facts to point out, hey, this is a person who was no longer cared about shareholder value. She was concerned about winning this deal at any pr- any cost. And, you know, your first time doing anything, you're probably going to get a little bit embarrassed if you're doing dealing with pros. And in this case, it was her first time doing big M&A and she was dealing with the master in negotiations and she got her pants pulled down a little bit. If you look at what Buffett ended up with, his structure is a very good fit if you agree with every word that Carl Icahn said about the nature of this company. Mm-hmm. You want the warrants for the uh, – you want volatility if you have preps and warrants. The company will probably survive enough to keep servicing the prefs even if oil is way down. I mean you could find where it would need to go to make it – call that a question, but way, way, way down. I'll get that. If it's way, way, way up – he'll make a ton of money in the warrants. So it's like if you agreed with Icon, you would be perfectly situated if you were Buffett. Yep, yep. And then I just think it's interesting to compare how Icon's approaching this situation. Now, Icon's always had a reputation for a little bit more sharp elbows than other people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in this case, he sees a deal that he thinks is terrible for shareholders. He admits that there's nothing he can do to stop it. And instead he's going, he's threatening to replace the board. He's prepared as soon as this deal is closed, he's got a plan. He's got the outlines of a plan in place to immediately start selling assets and try to get the company sold and realize a big premium. Whereas in third point sentine and kind of Bristlemeyer selling it was, hey, you know, instead of doing that deal, why don't you guys go do some other deal? We think there are more creative options out there. And it was just, there was a lot less planning to it. And I think that's a difference between a deal where you think the deal it's accretive, but you think there might be more upside in the case of kind of sentient well care versus this where horrible deal, way too much overpaid. There's good assets. I need to get in there, get rid of everyone and sell immediately. So I think that's sentient well care. I think that's Anadarko Oxy. A- anything else you want to talk about from this month? Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Yeah. Why, why don't you take it away and I'll kind of hop in here because sure. Jeopardy's been going on Jeopardy has been a lifelong goal of mine. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had never seen this show in my life. Uh, until the current uh, champion came on. He won one or two, and then I've been watching it consistently. The show goes really fast. It's a it's a fun, uh, quick watch, especially with being able to DVR and pass mm-hmm. through all the ads. Um, and he is a really brilliant guy, a uh, sports better uh, professionally, uh, somebody who clearly uh, prepared well for this show. Um, but I just think there's a lot to learn from him and a lot of fun in the show. If you have not seen it before, like I haven't, definitely uh, record and watch a few episodes. He's into it now 30. Uh, he will probably be there long enough t- for you to catch him on a few. Yeah. No, look, I've always loved Jeopardy. I actually haven't watched his run currently, but I used to DVR it every day and get through. And I, I remember you, you skip through the commercials, but there would always be like an leave Jeopardy commercial that was in the leave background. They trick you in the DVR. Yeah, and, and they'd always trick you into that. And I, I always hated that part. But no, I wanted to go to, I, I think the really interesting thing about him is he's employing a really interesting strategy. I think he's kind of taken optimal Jeopardy strategy to the edge where, hey, go start with, I believe he starts with the thousands to try to 
get some money and then go daily double hunting so you can really bet a lot of money into the daily double and i think that it's perfect strategy it's so good and i think his background as a sports gambler really set him up for that and it really set him up to uh kind of detach from hey i'm betting 25 30 40 000 on this game i can't be emotionally invested in that versus you know in jeopardy if you're going up against a school teacher they might be betting how much they make in six months or a year so i think he's got a really interesting emotional advantage there the one thing and you and i were talking about this before the one thing i wonder is you know it's interesting to watch him the best of the best do this jumping strategy where you go straight to thousands and then you go hunting through all the categories i do wonder if he's take if it kind of ruins tv viewing i've seen the jeopardy producers say before you know the best way for tv viewing is you start a category at the 200 and you go all the way through it if you're hopping back and forth it's tough for viewers to watch i wonder after he eventually loses and you get some imitators if jeopardy's ratings actually go down because it's less watchable and uh it's just interesting to think optimal strategy might not make for the best viewer content so I exactly i think often that's the tension is that there is a sort of societal norm for complying with the spirit and intention of how something's set up. But the person who's going to be the winner is going to be somebody who comes in and just doesn't have any reference to that and is really trying to play optimally. Um, definitely watch it, Andrew. He's, he's, he's so interesting to watch in a couple grounds. He's utterly unflappable. You know, you can tell he has this big behavioral advantage. Um, you can't tell if he's winning or if he's rarely losing. If you watch his personal demeanor and behavior, the one or two times, not only he's behind, but had to bet all of his advantage, you know, he was kind of say, call it three or four thousand, betting it to double versus somebody at nine thousand. He, he would have been almost insurmountable hole if he had lost the next question when he got a daily double and then won it and then came back to win. I sense he also might make his competitors a little worse. Uh, they seem a little frazzled and frustrated. And one of the behaviors I was watching uh, with their competitors is that when they clearly kind of are kind of grinding the buzzer. When he beat him to the buzzer and then got the question right, I find very frequently they will randomly buzz a few times after that just to try to get it to work even when they don't know the answer. And uh, so their behavior, he kind of seems to throw them off their uh, game. And clearly from betting, he's just very uh, good at mathematically correct bet sizing. Interestingly, I looked at his background. He was a mediocre student just because he skipped stuff he didn't care about, but he was a math club champ. Yeah. And then that kind of parlayed into uh, his betting career. I just want to dive back into, you said he throws his opponents off. And yeah. I think it's so interesting. Like, you know, there was the old phenomenon and every Sunday when Tiger Woods was at his p- the peak of his powers and he was playing golf, everyone around him would just fall apart. And I think it when you're playing someone so great, like you're more prone to make errors because you get in your own head about it. And the other thing that I, again, I I haven't watched him, but I did watch Ken Jennings. I've watched other great Jeopardy players. They make it look so effortless when they do it. And I've tried to like practice hitting the buzzer and, you know, saying, who is George Washington? And it's very difficult when you're doing if you're not a pro at it, but they make it seem so effortless. And it's just really interesting as you watch someone kind of at the peak of their powers, they make something that's actually quite difficult to kind of stay on top of the betting, stay on top of keeping track of the categories and everything. They make it look so easy. Yeah. And he's exactly, and he's not only uh, skilled, but he's also very introspective. Uh, He uh, gets answers that he chooses to make 97% of the time, almost always, which is very high compared to most of the other competitors when he doesn't know something he almost always knows that he doesn't know it uh, which is you know from an investing another perspective from sports betting extremely important attribute but one of the comments and this is really something i heard from aqr's cliff asnes that i think is very good is that 
it's easy to focus on the tricks. The tricks are fun. They're new. They're applicable to other people. But the tricks are not why he's winning. The tricks have given him a little bit of an edge relative to his underlying value as a player. There's a stat that's a great stat that has been developed for Jeopardy, which is how well would you have done X, the doubles and everything else, mm-hmm. just in your trivia knowledge. And his trivia knowledge is the best ever. And he would be have won 30 times with just that, albeit by much closer margins and with fewer dollars, m- many fewer dollars. No, it, it reminds me of like you and I have been into CrossFit and working out and stuff recently. And it reminds me of sometimes when you're looking to improve something in your CrossFit thing or improve a, a time, somebody would say, oh, you know, the, the biggest trick is move the bar closer to the to the pull-up rack. And yeah, that's really important if you're trying to save shape half seconds off your time. But sometimes it'd be like, hey, man, like, you're 250 pounds and you haven't done you haven't done a pull up in seven years, like maybe getting in shape first and then worrying about the the tricks is the most important thing. And in his case, he you know, he's done the pull ups, he's done the reps and the tricks. They're just such an exponential advantage for him. But you need to have done all the work before the tricks really make a difference in what you're talking about. I, I agree 100 percent. I completely agree and understand as a practitioner in different things, true in CrossFit, true in investing, true, you know, looking at this guy in jeopardy, a danger uh is that the people who are practitioners, I find it's so much more fun to talk about the tricks that you can actually, without intending to be misleading at all, do the grind, do the grind when nobody's looking, but have no reason to mention it to anybody. In fact, sometimes the grind, I would say always the grind. If you spend 10 hours working hard on something, you get to the end and you realize all sorts of ways you could have spent five hours doing it. It feels a little kind of foolish, but it certainly doesn't feel repeatable. And then there's some little novel trick that would have no particular importance in and of its own, but it's super fun. And uh, uh, so he's not the guy who figured out what to do with daily doubles. He's the guy who knows an enormous amount of trivia. Yep. No, I I think that's a great place to end it. I I completely agree with that. Let's end it here if that works for you. Sure. Perfect. So we'll end it there. That's all the time we have for today. Our disclosures, we're long Wellcare and we're long Anadarko and we are very long Jeopardy. We will talk to you guys next month. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.